Let us go before the Lord in prayer and ask Him to illumine this text to us this morning. O gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that You in Your mercy would send forth Your Spirit to illumine this text to us, to show forth the grandeur, the majesty, the beauty of our Creator and King. Lord, that we might be enraptured in all that You have done, in the way that You have formed this world and in all the majesty that it displays. Lord, I thank you and praise you that you have granted to us minds that are able to reason and understand and comprehend. And so I pray, Lord, that even though the wonders that are displayed before us in this text are great and grand, that you would give us a grasp and a comprehension and an understanding of how they point us to you and your greatness. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You would stand with me as we give attention to God's Word. I'm going to read a good portion of this text. I'm probably not going to read all 31 verses, but I'm going to read certain sections of it. Um, This is rather familiar. I'm going to assume that most of you, if not many of you, have read Genesis 1. And if you haven't, Well, this afternoon will be a great time for you to start reading through the book of Genesis. But I'm going to read uh, sections from this to help us to get a sense of the text. Beginning in verse 1. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And dropping now down to verses 26 through 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And now verse 31, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Amen. Please be seated. I have not taught on Genesis since... 2001. It's been a while, and I've, I've really been longing to get back to talk about Genesis. Genesis is a wonderful book. Um, it is a book that certainly describes beginnings, talks about how things are being thought through. Here's how I want us to begin thinking about this this morning, though. In Europe and America over the past 200 years, this has been the dominant discussion of Genesis chapter 1, has been the question of how. Now, over the last six or seven years, what I've continued to wrestle through is the fact that I don't think that's the main point of this text, is how. In fact, I think most of the discussions that have been about how 
have really taken away from what Genesis 1 really is about. Genesis 1 is really about who and why. That's what Genesis 1 is about. And I think it's really important that we, as we start in Genesis, really get a good start. That we really come to this and really wrestle with the questions of who and why. And here's why I think that's important. Because those really are the important questions. They're the questions that really matter at the end of the day. It's not that how questions aren't important, but who and why questions are more important. They're fundamental. They lie underneath the discussion. We also need to consider that Genesis 1 and 2 are not two different creation accounts. For those of you that have had the blessed trip through a major university, you've probably been told that these... uh, These are two different creation accounts. It's obvious that they are. Just look at them. One is about this and one is about that, and they've got all these different details. And here's the problem with that is is that we're trying to read Genesis as if somehow there's just just one genre in the Bible rather than multiple literary genres in the Bible. And we need to take that into consideration as we read Genesis 1 and 2. Genesis 1 is being written from a different angle than Genesis 2 is. They're the same story. Genesis 1 is more lyrical and poetic. I'm not saying it's completely a song. I'm just saying it's more lyrical and poetic. Why do I say that? Go throughout the Bible. Look at the songs that are throughout the Bible. They're always poetical. They're lyrical. They keep repeating phrases over and over again. And if you notice, all the way through Genesis chapter 1, there's repetition, repetition, repetition. That's important for us to pick up on. It's important for us to get a clue as to what Genesis 1 is telling us. Genesis 2 is much more narrative. I'm not saying there's no poetry because there is some poetry in Genesis 2. It's just that most of Genesis 2 is more narrative and it's taking us in at a closer look, whereas Genesis 1 is stepping back and looking at this great event. Genesis 2 tends to hone in a little more and draw us to focus on some different things. Both of these chapters in the book of Genesis are historical. You cannot play one and say, well, one's a poem. A poem about what? About history. And one is narrative. About what? About history. These are true statements. They are true evaluations. Much like you would read in Exodus where you have the great event of the Exodus and then you have the song about the Exodus and we see that there's distinctions in how that's doing. There's a similarity here in this text as well. So, as we look at this text, we're going to be concerned with the who, the what, and the why because the text is drawing us to these points and seeing them as crucial for understanding our place and purpose within the universe. And that's how I want to approach this. I am not saying, and please let me say this from the beginning, We could spend probably the next month on Genesis 1 and not remotely exhaust it. So when we're done today, if you say, well, what about this? And what about this? And what about this? Well, I'm perfectly willing to stand up here all day long and talk to you about Genesis chapter 1. And I'm not saying that would be a waste of our time. I just think that that we're going to look at some very critical parts of this text. And as we unpack the text over the next few weeks, we're going to be moving forward We're not just going to stay, but hopefully they'll be moving back and forth between these two texts. So the first thing I want us to look at then is the who. And I want to make very clear that Genesis lays out from the very first verse who this book, and I would contend with you who the whole Bible is about. 
in the beginning, God. Genesis is primarily a book about God. It's not primarily a book about Abraham. It's not primarily a book about Isaac or Jacob or Joseph. It's primarily a book about God. That is the focal point of the story. That is the great hero. That is what Genesis is written for. And maybe as a matter of context, you might remember that Genesis was most likely at least put together by Moses, wrote most of it, but he even alludes to certain books he was reading, so it's possible that there were some things that he, he got and gathered together that were historically um, already there. We know that that's no problem for us because Luke does the same thing in the Gospel of Luke. He gathers together the resources around him and writes a very truthful, accurate declaration. But Moses is, is the great author of this book. And because that's the case, he wasn't there when God created. So he is taking this from God himself telling him, but who's he writing it for? He's writing it for people who've just come out of Egypt, who've just been brought through the Red Sea to the other side. So this really is a book that is letting them know, how did we get to this place? How did we get here? What's going on? And more importantly, as I've said before, it's letting them know something about their God because realize, what did they know but the Egyptian gods and where were they going but to Canaan where those gods were going to say something different. So it was imperative for them as it is imperative for us to have a very clear understanding of who God is and who he is not so that we are not prone to make for ourselves and create a God which is not true. Now, the other thing I want you to notice about that first verse is that statement, in the beginning, that Hebrew word bereshit actually is used in the book of Jeremiah. It's the only other place it's used, that exact word. And here's the interesting thing that's always characteristic about that, is it always has something to do with sovereignty, a king, and it always has to do with, with the word of the Lord coming during the reign of somebody. Now, isn't that interesting as we look at Genesis chapter 1? Because if you were to basically read it like this, in the reign, in the beginning of the reign of God, he spoke, the word of God came and said. And if you were to go through Jeremiah and see those times, in the reign of King Zedekiah, the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. That's what it'll say, something to that effect. That Bereshit, that in the beginning. The beginning of what? A reign. What we have here is a declaration that God is the great king, that he has come to rule over his creation. It's not a creation that somehow is ruled by a whole bunch of different gods. There's only one God, and he rules over the whole of creation. The understanding there then will become helpful because as we look down at man being created in the image of God, just to kind of look forward a little bit, all the kings of that area at the time would do what? I mean, we see it in Egypt. You know, people pay thousands of dollars to go to Egypt to look at what? Pyramids. And what's usually in front of those pyramids? Images of the kings whose pyramid it is, where he's buried. So we start to see that God, in the very beginning, created his own image. And he set that image on planet Earth and said, This is my image. I'm declaring that I am God and there is no other. And that's what humanity is supposed to do. 
There is no other God but the one true God, and we're supposed to image him. I don't want to get too far into it because we'll look at that some more as in the coming weeks, but I want us to think about the fact that God is a great king, establishes himself. He creates and says, I'm the king, and there is no other. Now, a how question that we can't get away from, and we shouldn't, we should look at it, we might ask, well, how does God then begin to create? Well, he creates by his word. And if you notice throughout this passage, there's never a point where there's creation that it doesn't talk about God's word. God said, God spoke. Now, the interesting thing I want us to think about is this. When you and I speak, what happens? If I say, light turn on. The closest thing I can have to that is maybe a clapper, you know, those, those lights where you can clap and you clap and the light flips on. That's about the closest I can get. There's nobody in this room that can basically go, light be on, and actually light just comes on. Now, I don't know. There's some technology, I'm sure, out there now where someone can actually speak into a microphone and it has voice recognition and the whole house comes on. And I'm sure there's those kind of things. But realize this. The agency is not within, within your words. The agency is within a machine that recognizes your voice patterns. When God speaks, things actually happen. His voice, his word is creative. Now, there's a reason for that. Some of you may already know what the reason is. The reason is is that God's word is not just a movement of vocal cords since God doesn't have vocal cords. God's word is actually a person. How do we know that? Well, because we're told... In John chapter 1, an interesting thing. In the beginning was the Word. Same, same word, just in Greek, arche instead of bereshit. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And nothing came into being that has come into being apart from Him. The point is, is that when we see God speaking, it has power and agency because it is a person. It is the reality of his, the second person, the Godhead, making it so. And it is so. Because we see the Trinity at work there. We see the reality that there has been involvement from the very beginning of a God who is at work together within himself. One God, but three persons. The other thing I want you to notice about this text in these first few verses is that God is not a local deity. How do we know that? Look at what he says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And again, I say some of these things to you. It sounds kind of luxury, but it's just for you to get a, a picture of this. This is actually called in, in, in Hebrew circles um, a mirrorism. And what that basically means is it's all-encompassing. The heavens and the earth, thus everything in them. So all the mountains are his, the rivers are his, the stars are his handiwork too, as a little children's song goes. God made everything, the heavens and the earth and everything in them. He made the whole entire universe. And the idea there is is that God is the one who created it. He's not a local deity. He's not the deity of the mountains. He's not the deity of the river. And so it's important for us to begin to look at that. And One of the most, um, I guess, graphic discussions of this that you can find is in the book of Jonah. And it's always stood out to me when Jonah makes this statement. Here's Jonah sailing along. This great storm is all around him. Jonah's asleep down in the bottom. The captain comes down there and says, you've got to wake up. There's a storm. We're going to drown. 
you got to come up top. What's going on? They draw lots. They find out it's Jonah. They say, what's going on with you? And Jonah says to them, I am an Israelite, a worshiper of the true and living God, maker of the seas and the earth. And it says, they trembled greatly. Why? Because what they realize is this guy worships the God of gods. He's not just worshiping this sea's God or that land's God. Where can we go to get away from this God? Which is why, what do they do? They do what all human beings do when faced with with tragedy. They shore up their pants and they start rowing harder because they're, of course, going to get away from him. But I want us to see and understand that that powerful reality that's going on here, God is no mere local deity to be hailed as you walk past the door and say, or to be said grace to because you want him to watch over your home and keep it safe from burglars. This is a great king, the maker of the whole universe and beyond. Finally, Genesis 1 tells us something about the who. It says that the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, he's not hovering like a mist. It's not like this ethereal, multicolored mist that's hovering over the waters. You know, and you've got kind of this mystic reality going on. No, the word that's used there, hover, is always used elsewhere in Scripture of a mother bird hovering over her nest to either care, to give comfort, to give protection to her, her, her eggs or her unborn chicks, or else it has the notion of her hovering over them as she feeds them. But notice what's being said here is that the third person of the Godhead, God's Spirit, was caring for, hovering over, superintending the earth. Now what's that tell us? That begins to tell us some very amazing things about God. He's a king. He creates He's done all these things. It's Him that cares for the earth. It's Him that made the earth. Notice what that begins then to do for us. It begins to draw us and say, when you're in trouble, who should you look to? Well, who made the planet? Who, who do you answer to? Who's the one who can correct the problems? See, it begins to point us away from ourselves, away from salvation on this planet, towards a God who alone can do all things exceedingly and abundantly well. Now, the next thing I want us to look at then is the reality that what this begins to do then is confronts the notion of animism. God is not some kind of idea of animal. There's not the animal gods. There's not the river gods. There's not all these deities. It certainly confronts us that. It also says this, creation or the God who created is not impersonal. That's the idea that's being said when we're told that the Spirit is hovering over the waters, caring for it, nurturing it. He's not indifferent to it. It matters to Him. He cares about it. So that the idea of the impersonal plus time plus chance can't be right according to Genesis, which is basically what most science operates off of, the impersonal plus time plus chance. What this says is chance has nothing to do with it, and certainly the impersonal has nothing to do with it. It is a personal God speaking into a world that he cares about.
Now, this next thing I want us to look at is the what. Genesis tells us that God is unique and distinct from creative, from the creative idolatry of humanity. Most ancient mythologies believe and teach that the gods created out of matter that already existed. If you read the, the famous Enuma Elish, hopefully I'm saying that correctly, um, the idea there is that the great god Marduk defeated the great sea monster, the great sea dragon Tiamat, and when he defeated her, he basically slit her open and began to create out of that the world, the universe. He created the universe out of that. We don't have much better help from the Greeks. Their basic viewpoint was that that Zeus and all the children of the Titans rose up against the Titans and defeated them, and out of their, them they began to create and mold and shape, and blood was used. And most of the ideas that we have from ancient literature is that somehow blood and carcasses of defeated foes is the substance, is the stuff that the universe and the world is made out of. Now here's the question that should bother you about that because it's the question we always should ask people when they give us their creation account. Well, where did that come from? I mean, isn't that a logical question? Where did that come from? Well, where did they come from? Well, the Titans were there before the, God, the Greek gods, but where did they come from? I mean, that's always been my question for science is, is that I actually had a conversation, had the privilege of having a conversation with a man the other day in the airport um, who said, you know, he had just come to a place where he felt like that his basic job in life was to live by the golden rule. He had no idea. He, he agreed with me that there was no, that, that certainly science did not answer the more important questions of who and why. He just said, I have no answer for it, and I don't find any religion to give me a satisfactory answer, so I just opt not to deal with it anymore. I just choose to live and try and be a decent person. And my question to him was, why? Why do you try to be a decent person? And how do you know that what you're doing is actually being a decent person? How do you know that maybe what you're doing is not very decent at all? Well, it seems right. And, you know, Jesus said, and it's, isn't it interesting that, that, that that's the person that he would go to and, and bring up? And, you know, well, Jesus said we should treat other people kindly. Who cares what Jesus says? There has to be a reason. So the what that we want to begin to look at here then is this. Genesis is striking because the word that is used there, um, the idea of create, is only used of God throughout the entire Bible. That word is only used of God, and it always means to create something that didn't exist before. The same word is used in Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God. So in the beginning, God created something that did not exist before. It was something only God could create, and it was out of nothing. I'm happy for those of you that have read Edwards' view of creation, Jonathan Edwards. I like what he says. He, he says that rather than creation being ex nihilo, God out of nothing, he says it's ex deus, which basically is a fancy way of saying it's out of the mind of God. And I kind of think that's good because there's a sense in which what he wants to say is it always existed in God's mind. God's always known everything he was going to do. It's not something that wasn't there. It's something that merely God, at, at a particular place and time, decided to create. But it was always in God's mind. Either way, the point is there was no substance. There was no matter until God said, let it be. 
And again, the reality is here that the reason why that comes into action is because of the second person of the Godhead speaking into it. The other thing I want us to notice about Genesis 1 is it's, all, it's moving us towards a climax, and that's a difference in Genesis 2. Genesis 1 is moving us. We see problems created. Um, and, and I say problems. We see, we see maybe a better way to put that is we see issues that need to be resolved, and here's, here's what they are in, in basic terminology. There's emptiness. Look at verse 2. The earth was without form and void. It was empty. The second dilemma is, and darkness was over the face of the deep. So there's darkness. And that's that's got to be addressed. It's an issue that has to be addressed. And finally, the waters are covering the entire planet. That's an issue that has to be addressed. Why? See, that's what ultimately this text is driving us, is to ask that question, why? That's why it's set up the way it's set up. God addresses these by establishing rulers. He establishes the sun and the moon, one to govern the day and one to govern the night to rule over it. He tells us that the birds rule over the air and the sea creatures rule over the seas. And then he begins to create the land. He separates these things. He creates these things. Now, here's what I want us to see when we look at the what and why it's important. Here's the main thing that you need to understand in Genesis that's confronted. And I think it's very relevant for us today. Ultimately, two things which are our gods today are confronted. One is, and this is taught over and over again, and it just continues to resurface in new and various forms, is this. This body, this world is something to be endured until I can escape it. My basic duty is to either have as much fun as I can have until I can get out of here, or I'm supposed to live a very rigorous ascetic life so that I can get out of here. But any way you look at it, what's ultimately being pointed to is this notion of the big deal is to get out of this body, get out of this material world, and get back into the spiritual because that's where life is good. Now, Genesis 1 confronts that idea, but it also confronts the other God of our age, and that God is this. All there is is the stuff you can see. And since that's all there is, you ought to get as much of it and as much out of it as you can get. Because when the day comes and you die, the best you can hope for is a knife's coffin that keeps the worms out for a long period of time. Because that's it. The reality is is the two basic assumptions that most people in our world live with is either I need to get out of the body or the body's all I got, so I better take care of it. Now notice how biblical Christianity confronts both of those. It confronts the notion of materialism, which says that all we got is this. Well, that's not true. This isn't all we have. There is a God who has made this, and therefore there's always something beyond this stuff that matters. The reason why this stuff matters is because of Him. This isn't all we've got. It's just the stuff. But it also confronts the notion that what's really good is to get away from the stuff. That matter actually is holding us back. That somehow pleasure and treasure are bad things. See, Christianity says that's not true. It says that those things do matter. We just don't live for it. It's not why we live. It's not why we get up in the morning. It's not for pleasure and treasure, at least not in the sense of 
of an everyday worldly pleasure. There's something beyond that. There's greater pleasure and greater treasure, which is why we get up. But it also confronts the notion that somehow that, if we could, if, that getting away from this body is more spiritual. That if we could just put away all that stuff, if you just quit being about pleasure, if you just really get serious about spiritual things, as if somehow spiritual things aren't very tangible. And here's what I want you to think about that. John chapter 1 verse 14 says something rather profound. The Word became what? Flesh. The Word became the touchy-feely stuff. And I don't want to go too much into this, but do you understand what this begins to say to you? It begins to say that when you get up to go to work, it matters. It begins to say to you, if you're a housewife and you're messing, cleaning up vomit and stinky diapers and all these other kind of things that, that you're doing... What you're doing matters. It says that when you go to this job that seems to be just this mundane, endless, same thing, second, third, fifth, millionth verse, same as the first job, that it's not irrelevant. You're not indifferent to it. It matters. Substance, stuff you do matters. Your body matters. You just don't live for it. So that's why it's important for us to understand the stuff, the what, God creates because it matters. The last thing I want us to talk about then is the why. Genesis 1 moves in a progressive way leading to a pinnacle or climax of the story. And the writer gives us various clues in the text that this is what he's doing. There's, for one thing, there's a repetitive phrase, and this is the repetitive phrase I'm speaking of. There are several, but this is the main one that I'm looking at. In verse 10, we see it. And God saw that it was good. We just continue to drop down through the text in verse 12, and God saw that it was good. And down in verse 18, and God saw that it was good. What we need to understand then is this. It is not the Lord saying something like this. Um, you know when you buy a new suit or you get some new clothes and you have that little uh, tag that you never find until you've been wearing it for about two or three times or you forgot to get it out and it's washed and it's this wadded up thing, and you kind of pull it out, and it says, expected by number 21. And you say, hallelujah for number 21. Let me suggest to you that this is not what God is doing in this text. He's not stepping back and looking and saying, and then there was evening and there was morning. They pass inspection. That's not what this text is telling us. When we get down to the why God created, what this text is telling us is that God says, I made this because it is good. It's beautiful. It's lovely. It does exactly what I made it to do. It's wonderful. Don't you see it? See, it's almost in this sense that when we talk about creation singing, and there are hymns written about it, and the idea of the creation singing out the fields shall clap their hands. These ideas all throughout Scripture that we hear and that we resonate with, that somehow when we look out at those Catalina Mountains in the evening and they begin to turn that incredible purpley-pink shade and we watch that sunset going down behind us in the back and we're just astounded and we just all of a sudden, you can almost hear it, you just 
hear that beautiful, majestic sound which says, beautiful, glorious, great, good. What it's doing is basically antithetically singing back to its creator. Because the creator first sang to it, you are so good. You are so beautiful. You are so glorious to behold. See, that's how God looked at his creation. At each stage, he said, it is good. And he resonated in it. He rejoiced in it. And we need to see that. The second thing I want us to notice then about the why is what is described in verses 26 through 28. The first thing I want you to notice there, and this is the main point I want us to get at, is who is God talking to there? Then God said, let us make man. Who is he talking to? I mean, Isaiah 40 makes it very clear to us in verse 14 that God took no counsel with anyone else when he made the earth and all that is in it. He didn't counsel with anyone else. He just counseled with God. So the answers that some have said is always talking to the angels or always talking to this group or that group or the other group. No, there's only one person he could be talking to. That's himself. And the thing I want you to begin to look at is this, that why God creates is not so, as some have suggested, that he could have someone to love. It's not, as some have suggested, so that he could finally have community. What we need to really realize is this. What we're actually seeing in this passage here is this, that God is saying life is so wonderful within us. The relationship is so beautiful within us. We rejoice together. Love is flowing back and forth. And what God ultimately wanted to do in His creation was to create something that was an extension of what He is. Beautiful, glorious, holy, a community relationships, love. You see, this confronts every other, every major world religion. Do you realize that? Because even those that are monotheistic, like present-day Judaism or Islam, what they ultimately have to teach you is somehow that God created to get love, to get community. Why? Because He was all love. And you see what Genesis is saying to us is that's absolutely fundamentally not true. The reason why we are loved is because God was loving Himself. Not selfishly, like He was all by Himself, just loving Himself, but there's a trinity. There are three persons, and they each were loving one another. There was community and care and kindness going on. And they were resonating in it, and out of that, came creation, was an expression of the beauty, the love, the joy, the happiness of the Godhead. And then the final thing we see that tells us that this is the great crescendo is what verse 31 says, because it's the first time that God actually makes a statement beyond just it is good. In verse 31 he says, and it was very good with man being there, the great crescendo. Now, what I want you to begin to think about here is this. There's a sense in which while we can resonate with this, we all know, don't we? That no matter how much we try to get 
close to one another, we feel a barrier. When we go out into nature, there's a sense in which we, we know there's a song being sung, and we know we want to sing that song with it, but we're out of accord with it, and we can sense it. It's almost like we can almost taste it and touch it. It's why so many people ultimately go out and look to nature to somehow give them something. They know it's giving them something. They just fail to see what it ultimately points them to. They think somehow within it, they will find hope. That somehow that song, eventually, if they spend enough time in it, they spend enough time with it, they will be able to start to sing. They will start to have it actually inhabit them, and they will become part of it. And there's a sense, men and women, where if you've really ever felt a sunset at the beach, if you've ever really been in the, in the mountains in the morning as the sun rises over a ridge and you're sitting there with friends, you know there's a song being sung. You hear it subtly. And there's a sense in which your heart longs to sing, but you seem to come up short. Here's why. Because we're out of accord with the Maker. We're out of accord with the Maker. And creation keeps singing, and we want to sing, and we want to join the song, but we're struggling because we're out of accord. And here's what I want you to hear at the very conclusion. The, restound, the re, astounding reality we need to see in here is this. That the king, the creator, became the image. The very thing he created that was supposed to stand in the middle of all creation and say, and now let us sing, defected. That's why we're out of accord. We defected. We were supposed to be the song leader and we defected. And so the Creator King came down and became the image. He became part of the creation. He entered into the creative world. This King subjected Himself to become sin and to die. I want you to think about this. Jesus was deconstructed. He was unmade so that we could be remade. He became formless and void so that we might be filled. The creative word who spoke light into existence on that cross was shrouded in darkness so that we might be brought into His marvelous light. And how does the rest of 1 Peter go? So that we might declare the excellencies of His grace. Now, I don't know about you, but most of the time when I'm really excited about something, I don't generally tend to sit around and go, well, let's look at the uh, very important and salient points of this very amazing and wonderful thing that has just happened to us. Usually we're pretty ecstatic. Usually we're pretty excited. And one of the ways we oftentimes will express it is in song. It's why some of the great songs of every age express this great wonder at love and joy and the beauty of the created world. See, 
The reason why Christ came and was unmade to remake us was so once again we would reestablish ourselves as singing and leading creation in song. Not standing out there looking at it singing, but leading it and joining in the song. What I want us to remember is, is that we were called to sing. Genesis 1 tells us so. It's a song. And it says, sing to the glory of the Creator. Sing of the majesty of the King. Declare His praises. May God make it so in our midst. Amen.